0: part 2 chapter 6 section 79 of the life of jesus critically examined by david friedrich strauss translated by george eliot this librivox recording is in the public domain part 2 history of the public life of jesus chapter 6 the discourses of jesus in the three first gospels section 79 miscellaneous instructions and controversies of jesus as the discourses in matthew chapter 15 verses 1 through 20 have been already considered we must pass on to chapter 18 verse 1 and following mark chapter 9 verse 33 and following luke chapter 9 verse 46 and following where various discourses are connected with the exhibition of a little child occasioned by a contention for preeminence among the disciples The admonition to become as a little child, and to humble oneself as a little child, in Matthew, forms a perfectly suitable comment on the symbolical reproof, verse 3 and 4. But the connection between this and the following declaration of Jesus, that whosoever receives one such little child in his name receives him, is not so obvious. For the child was set up to teach the disciples in what they were to imitate it, not how they were to behave towards it. And how Jesus could all at once lose sight of his original object, it is difficult to conceive. But yet more glaring is the irrelevance of the declaration in Mark and Luke. For they make it follow immediately on the exhibition of the child, so that, according to this, Jesus must In the very act have forgotten its object namely to present the child to his ambitious disciples as worthy of imitation not as in want of reception jesus was accustomed to say of his disciples that whosoever received them received him and in him the father who sent him matthew chapter 10 verse 40 and following luke chapter 10 verse 16 john chapter thirteen verse twenty of children he elsewhere says merely that whosoever does not receive the kingdom of heaven as a little child cannot enter therein mark chapter ten verse fifteen luke chapter eighteen verse seventeen this declaration would be perfectly adapted to the occasion in question and we may almost venture to conjecture that hos eon me dexitai, tene uranon hos eon was the original passage, and that the actual one is the result of its confusion with Matthew chapter ten verse forty, hos aen dexitai, paideion toy uton, hen epi to on omati mou. Closely connected by the word answering, with the sentences just considered. Mark chapter nine, verse thirty eight and following, and Luke chapter nine verse forty nine and following introduce the information which John is said to give to Jesus, that the disciples, having seen one casting out devils in the name of Jesus without attaching himself to their society, had forbidden him. Schleiermacher explains the connection thus: because Jesus had commanded the reception of children in his name, John was led to the confession that he and his associates had hitherto been so far from regarding their performance of an act in the name of Jesus as the point of chief importance that they had interdicted the use of his name to one who followed not with them. Allowing this explanation to be correct, we must believe that John, arrested by the phrase in my name, which yet is not prominent in the declaration of Jesus, and which must have been thrown still further into the background by the sight of the child set up in the midst, drew from it the general inference that in all actions the essential point is to perform them in the name of Jesus, and with equal rapidity leaped to the remote reflection that the conduct of the disciples towards the exorcist was in contradiction with this rule but all this supposes the facility of combination which belongs to a schleiermacher not the dullness which still characterized the disciples nevertheless the above critic has unquestionably opened on the true vein of connection between the preceding apophthegm and this apocrisis of john he has only failed to perceive that this connection is not intrinsic and original but extrinsic and secondary it was quite beyond the reach of the disciples to apply the words in my name by a train of deductions to an obliquely connected case in their own experience but according to our previous observations nothing could be more consistent with the habit of association that characterizes the writer of the evangelical tradition In the third gospel whence the second evangelist seems to have borrowed then that he should be reminded by the striking phrase in my name in the preceding discourse of jesus of an anecdote containing the same expression and should unite the two for the sake of that point of external similarity alone to the exhortation to receive such little children matthew annexes the warning against offending one of these little ones an epithet which in chapter 10 verse 42 is applied to the disciples of jesus but in this passage apparently to children mark verse 42 has the same continuation notwithstanding the interruption above noticed probably because he forsook luke who here breaks off the discourse and does not introduce the admonition against offences until later chapter 17 verse 1 and following and apart from any occasion that might prompt it and appealed to matthew then follows in matthew verse 8 and following and mark verse 43 and following a passage which alone ought to open the eyes of commentators to the mode in which the synoptists arrange the sayings of jesus to the warning against the offending of the little ones and the woe pronounced on those by whom offences come they annex the abothem on the offending of the hand eye etc jesus could not proceed thus for the injunctions mislead not the little ones and let not your sensuality mislead you have nothing in common but the word mislead it is easy however to account for their association by the writer of the first gospel the word skandalizein recalled to his mind all the discourses of jesus containing a similar expression that had come to his knowledge and although he had previously presented the admonitions concerning seduction by the members in a better connection As part of the Sermon on the Mount, he could not resist the temptation of reproducing them here for the sake of this slight verbal affinity with the foregoing text. But at verse 10, he resumes the thread which he had dropped in verse 7 and adds a further discourse on the little ones. Matthew makes Jesus confirm their value of the little ones by the declaration that the Son of Man was come to seek the lost. And by the parable of the lost sheep verse 11 through 14 it is not however evident why jesus should class the rus with the apololos and both the declaration and the parable seem to be better placed by luke who introduces the former in the narrative of the calling of zacchaeus chapter 19 verse 10 and the latter in a reply to the objections of the Pharisees against the amity of Jesus with the publicans. Chapter 15, verse 3 and following. Matthew seems to have placed them here merely because the discourse on the little ones reminded him of that on the lost, both exemplifying the mildness and humility of Jesus. Between the moral of the above parable, verse 14, and the following rules for the conduct of Christians under injuries, verse 15 and following, there is again only a verbal connection, which may be traced by means of the words apolitae, should perish, and ekerdisas, thou hast gained. For the proposition God wills not that one of these little ones should perish might recall the proposition we should endeavor to win over our brother by showing a readiness to forgive the direction to bring the offender before the church ecclesia is generally adduced as a proof that jesus intended to found a church but he here speaks of the ecclesia as an institution already existing hence we must either refer the expression to the jewish synagogue an interpretation which is favored by the analogy of this direction with jewish precepts or if according to the strict meaning of the word and its connection ecclesia must be understood as the designation of the christian community which did not then exist it must be admitted that we have here at least in the form of expression an anticipation of a subsequent state of things the writer certainly had in view the new church eventually to be founded in the name of jesus when in continuation he represented the latter as imparting to the body of the disciples the authority to bind and to loose previously given to peter and thus to form a messianic religious constitution the declarations concerning the success of unanimous prayer and the presence of Jesus among two or three gathered together in his name, accord with this prospective idea. The next discourse that presents itself, Matthew chapter 19 verses 3 through 12, Mark chapter 10 verses 2 through 12, though belonging, according to the evangelists, to the last journey of Jesus, is of the same stamp with the disputations which they, for the most part, assign to the last residence of jesus in jerusalem some pharisees propose to jesus the question at that time much discussed in the jewish schools whether it be lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause to avoid a contradiction between modern practice and the dictum of jesus it has been alleged that he here censures the species of divorce which was the only one known at that period namely the arbitrary dismissal of a wife but not the judicial separation resorted to in the present day but this very argument involves the admission that jesus denounced all the forms of divorce known to him whence the question still remains whether if he could have had cognizance of the modern procedure in dissolving matrimony he would have held it right to limit his general censure Of the succeeding declaration prompted by a question of the disciples namely that celibacy may be practiced for the kingdom of heaven's sake jesus himself says that it cannot be understood by all but only by those to whom it is given verse 11 that the doctrine of jesus may not run counter to modern opinion it has been eagerly suggested that this panegyric on celibacy had relation solely to the circumstances of the coming time, or to the nature of the apostolic mission, which would be impeded by family ties. But there is even less intimation of this special bearing in the text than in the analogous passage, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25 and following. And, adhering to a simple interpretation, it must be granted that we have here one of the instances in which ascetic principles, such as were then prevalent, especially among the Essenes, manifest themselves in the teaching of Jesus, as represented in the Synoptical Gospels. The controversial discourses which Matthew almost throughout in agreement with the other Synoptists, places after the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, chapter 21, verses 23 through 27, chapter twenty two verses fifteen through forty six are certainly pre-eminently genuine fragments having precisely the spirit and tone of the rabbinical dialectics in the time of jesus the third and fifth among them are particularly worthy of note because they exhibit jesus as an interpreter of scripture with respect to the former wherein jesus endeavors to convince the sadducees that there will be a resurrection of the dead from the mosaic designation of god as the god of abraham of isaac and of jacob maintaining that he is not the god of the dead but of the living matthew chapter 22 verses 31 through 33 and parallel passages paulus admits that jesus here argues subtly while he contends that the conclusion is really involved in the premises but in the expression the god of abraham etc which had become a mere formula nothing more is implied than that jehovah as he had been the protecting deity of these men would forever continue to their posterity an individual relation subsisting between jehovah and the patriarchs after their death is nowhere else alluded to in the old testament and could only be discovered in the above form by rabbinical interpreters, at a time when it was thought desirable, at any cost, to show that the idea of immortality, which had become prevalent, was contained in the law, where, however, it is not to be met with by unprejudiced eyes. We find the relation of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob adduced as a guarantee of immortality elsewhere in rabbinical arguments all of which could hardly have been modeled on this one of Jesus. If we look into the most recent commentaries, we nowhere find a candid confession as to the real character of the argumentation in question. Olhausen has wonders to tell of the deep truth contained in it, and thinks that he can deduce from it, in the shortest way, the authenticity and divinity of the Pentateuch. Paulus sees the validity of the proof between the lines of the text. Phrytia is silent. Wherefore these evasions? Why is the praise of having seen clearly and spoken openly, in this matter, abandoned by the Wolfenbeutel fragmentist? What spectres and double-sided beings must Moses and Jesus have been if they mixed with their contemporaries without any real participation in their opinions and weaknesses their joys and griefs if mentally dwelling apart from their age and nation they conformed to these relations only externally and by accommodation while internally and according to their nature they stood among the foremost ranks of the enlightened in modern times far more noble were these men nay they would then only engage our sympathy and reverence if in a genuinely human manner struggling with the limitations and prejudices of their age they succumbed to them in a hundred secondary matters and only attained perfect freedom in relation to the one point by which each was destined to contribute to the advancement of mankind a controversial question concerning the messiah is proposed verse 41 through 46 To the Pharisees by Jesus. Namely, how can the same personage be at once the Lord and the Son of David? Paulus maintains that this is a model of interpretation in conformity with the text, an assertion which is no good augury that his own possesses that qualification. According to him, Jesus, in asking how David could call the Messiah Lord, when in the general opinion he was his son intended to apprise the pharisees that in this psalm it is not david who is speaking of the messiah but another poet who is speaking of david as his lord so that to suppose this warlike psalm a messianic one is a mistake why asks paulus should not jesus have found out this interpretation since it is the true one but this is the grand error of his entire scheme of interpretation to suppose that what is truth in itself, or more correctly, for us, must, even to the minutest details, have been truth for Jesus and the apostles. The majority of ancient Jewish interpreters apply this psalm to the Messiah. The apostles use it as a prophecy concerning Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 34 and following. 1st corinthians chapter 15 verse 25 jesus himself according to matthew and mark adds en penumati to David kalai auton kurion thus plainly giving his approval to the notion that it is david who there speaks and that the messiah is his subject how then can it be thought that he held the contrary opinion it is far more probable as Olshausen has well shown, that Jesus believed the psalm to be a messianic one, while, on the other hand, Paulus is equally correct in maintaining that it originally referred not to the Messiah, but to some Jewish ruler, whether David or another. Thus, we find that Jesus here gives a model of interpretation, in conformity not with the text, but with the spirit of his time. A discovery which, if the above observations be just, ought to excite no surprise. The solution of the enigma which Jesus here proposes to the Pharisees lay, without doubt, according to his idea, in the doctrine of the higher nature of the Messiah, whether he held that, in virtue of this, he might be styled the Lord of David, while, in virtue of his human nature, he might also be regarded as his son or whether he wished to remove the latter notion as erroneous the result however and perhaps also the intention of jesus with respect to the pharisees was merely to convince them that he was capable of retaliating on them in their own way by embarrassing them with captious questions and that with better success than they had obtaining in their attempts to entrap him. Hence, the evangelists place this passage at the close of the disputations prompted by the Pharisees, and Matthew adds, Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. A concluding form which is more suitable here than after the lesson administered by the Sadducees, where it is placed by Luke. Chapter 20, verse 40 or then after the discussion on the Greatest Commandment, where it is introduced by Mark. Chapter 12, verse 34. Immediately before this question of Jesus, the first two evangelists narrate a conversation with a lawyer or scribe concerning the Greatest Commandment. Matthew, chapter 22, verse 34 and following. Mark, chapter 12, verse 28 and following. Matthew annexes this conversation to the dispute with the Sadducees, as if the Pharisees wished, by their question as to the greatest commandment, to avenge the defeat of the Sadducees. It is well known, however, that these sects were not thus friendly. On the contrary, we read in the Acts, chapter 23, verse 7, that the Pharisees were inclined to go over to the side of one whom they had previously persecuted. Solely because he had had the address to take the position of an opponent towards the Sadducees. We may here quote Schneckenberger's observation that Matthew not seldom, chapter three, verse seven, chapter sixteen, verse one, places the Pharisees and Sadducees side by side in a way that represents not their real hostility, but their association in the memory of tradition in which one opposite suggested another. In this respect, Mark's mode of annexing this conversation to the foregoing is more consistent. But all the synoptists seem to labor under a common mistake in supposing that these discussions, grouped together in tradition on account of their analogy, followed each other so closely in time that one colloquy elicited another. Luke does not give the question concerning the greatest commandment in connection with the controversies on the resurrection and the Messiah, but he has a similar incident earlier in his narrative of the journey to Jerusalem. Chapter 10, verse 25 and following. The general opinion is that the first two evangelists recount the same occurrence, and the third a distinct one. It is true that the narrative of Luke differs from that of Matthew and Mark in several not immaterial points. The first difference, which we have already noticed, relates to chronological position, and this has been the chief inducement to the supposition of two events. The next difference lies in the nature of the question, which, in Luke, turns on the rule of life calculated to ensure the inheritance of eternal life, but in the other evangelists, on the greatest commandment. The third difference is in the subject who pronounces this commandment, the first two synoptists representing it to be Jesus, the third the lawyer. Lastly, there is a difference as to the issue. The lawyer in Luke putting a second self-vindicatory question which calls forth the parable of the good samaritan while in the two other evangelists he retires either satisfied or silenced by the answer to the first meanwhile even between the narrative of matthew and that of mark there are important divergencies the principle relates to the character of the queerist who in matthew Proposes his question with a view to tempt Jesus, in Mark, with good intentions, because he had perceived that Jesus had answered the Sadducees well. Paulus, indeed, although he elsewhere, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, considers the act of tempting as the putting a person to the proof to subserve interested views, pronounces that the word pyrazon, in this instance, can only be intended in a good sense but the sole ground for this interpretation lies not in matthew but in mark and in the unfounded supposition that the two writers could not have had a different idea of the character and intention of the inquiring doctor of the law fritzsche has correctly pointed out the difficulty of conciliating matthew and mark as lying partly in the meaning of the word pyrazon and partly in the context it being inadmissible to suppose one among a series of malevolent questions friendly without any intimation of the distinction on the part of the writer with this important diversity is connected the minor one that while in matthew the scribe after jesus has recited the two commandments is silent apparently from shame which is no sign of a friendly disposition on his part towards jesus in mark he not only bestows on jesus the approving expression well master thou hast said the truth but enlarges on his doctrine so as to draw from jesus the declaration that he has answered discreetly and is not far from the kingdom of god It may be also noticed that while in Matthew Jesus simply repeats the commandment of love, in Mark he prefaces it by the words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. Thus, if it be held that the differences between the narrative of Luke and that of the two other evangelists entail a necessity for supposing that they are founded on two separate events, the no-slighter differences between mark and matthew must in all consistency be made a reason for supposing a third but it is so difficult to credit the reality of three occurrences essentially alike that the other alternative of reducing them to one must prejudice apart be always preferred the narratives of matthew and mark are the most easily identified but there are not wanting points of contact between matthew and luke for in both the lawyer appears as a tempter and is not impressed in favor of jesus by his answer nor even between luke and mark for these agree in appending explanatory remarks to the greatest commandment as well as in the insertion of forms of assent such as thou hast answered right thou hast said the truth hence it is evident that to fuse only two of their narratives is a half-measure and that we must either regard all three as independent or all three as identical whence again we may observe the freedom which was used by the early christian legend in giving various forms to a single fact or idea the fundamental fact in the present case being that out of the whole mosaic code jesus had selected the two commandments concerning the love of god and our neighbor as the most excellent we come now to the great anti-pharisaic discourse which matthew gives chapter 23 as a sort of pitched battle after the skirmishing of the preceding disputations mark chapter 12 verse 38 and following and luke Chapter 20, verse 45 and following have also a discourse of Jesus against the scribes, but extending no farther than a few verses. It is, however, highly probable, as our modern critics allow, that Jesus should launch out into fuller invectives against that body of men under the circumstances in which Matthew places that discourse, and it is almost certain that such sharp enunciations must have preceded the catastrophe, so that it is not admissible to control the account of the first evangelist by the meager one of the two other synoptists, especially as the former is distinguished by connectedness and unity. It is true that much of what Matthew here presents as a continuous address is assigned by Luke to various scenes and occasions and it would hence follow that the former has, in this case again, blended the original elements of the discourse with kindred matter, belonging to the discourses of various periods, if it could be shown that the arrangement of Luke is the correct one, a position which must therefore be examined. Those parts of the anti-Pharisaic harangue which Luke has in common with Matthew are, excepting the couple of verses which he places in the same connection as Matthew, introduced by him as concomitant with two entertainments to which he represents Jesus as being invited by Pharisees. Chapter 11, verse 37 and following. Chapter 14, verse 1 and following. A politeness on their part, which appears in no other gospel. The expositors of the present day, almost with one voice concur in admiring the naturalness and faithfulness with which luke has preserved to us the original occasions of these discourses it is certainly natural enough that in the second entertainment jesus observing the efforts of the guests to obtain the highest places for themselves should take occasion to admonish them against assuming the precedence at feasts even on the low ground of prudential considerations and this admonition appears in a curtailed form and without any special cause in the final anti-pharisaic discourse in matthew mark and even in luke again chapter twenty verse forty six but it is otherwise with the discourse which luke attaches to the earlier entertainment in the pharisee's house in the very commencement of this repast jesus not only speaks of the ravening and wickedness with which the pharisees fill the cup and platter and honors them with the title of fools but breaks forth into a denunciation of woe against them and the scribes and doctors of the law threatening them with retribution for all the blood that had been shed by their fathers whose deeds they approved we grant that attic urbanity is not to be expected in a jewish teacher but even according to the oriental standard such invectives uttered at table against the host and his guests would be the grossest dereliction of what is due to hospitality this was obvious to schleiermacher's acute perception and he therefore supposes that the meal passed off amicably And that it was not until its close when jesus was again out of the house that the host expressed his surprise at the neglect of the usual ablutions by jesus and his disciples and that jesus answered with so much asperity but to assume that the writer has not described the meal itself and the incidents that accompanied it and that he has noticed it merely for the sake of its connection with the subsequent discourse is an arbitrary mode of overcoming the difficulty for the text runs thus and he went in and sat down to meat, and when the pharisee saw it he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner and the lord said unto him it is manifestly impossible to entrust in between these sentences the duration of the meal AND IT MUST HAVE BEEN THE INTENTION OF THE WRITER TO ATTACH, HE MARVELLED, TO, HE SAT DOWN TO MEET, AND, HE SAID, TO, HE MARVELLED. BUT IF THIS COULD NOT REALLY HAVE BEEN THE CASE, UNLESS JESUS VIOLATED IN THE GROSSEST MANNER THE SIMPLEST DICTATES OF CIVILITY, THERE IS AN END TO THE VAUNTED ACCURACY OF LUKE IN HIS ALLOCATION OF THIS DISCOURSE and we have only to inquire how he could be led to give it so false a position. This is to be discovered by comparing the manner in which the two other synoptists mention the offense of the Pharisees, at the omission of the ablutions before meals by Jesus and his disciples, a circumstance to which they annex discourses different from those given by Luke. In Matthew, chapter 15, verse 1 and following, Scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem ask Jesus why his disciples do not observe the custom of washing before meat. It is thus implied that they knew of this omission, as may easily be supposed by report. In Mark chapter seven verse one and following, they look on while some disciples of Jesus eat with unwashed hands and call them to account for this irregularity. Lastly, in Luke, Jesus himself dines with a Pharisee, and on this occasion it is observed that he neglects the usual washings. This is an evident climax, hearing, witnessing, taking food together. Was it formed in the descending gradation, from Luke to Matthew, or in the ascending one, from Matthew to Luke? From the point of view adopted by the recent critics of the first gospel the former mode will be held the most probable namely that the memory of the original scene the repast in the pharisee's house was lost in the process of tradition and is therefore wanting in the first gospel but apart from the difficulty of conceiving that this discourse was uttered under the circumstances with which it is invested by luke it is by no means in accordance with the course of tradition when once in possession of so dramatic a particular as a feast to let it fall again but rather to supply it if lacking the general tendency of the legend is to transform the abstract into the concrete the mediate into the immediate hearsay into vision the spectator into the participator And, as the offense taken against Jesus by the Pharisees referred, among other things, to the usages of the table, nothing was more natural than for legend to associate the origin of the offense with a particular place and occasion, and for this purpose to imagine invitations given to Jesus by Pharisees, invitations which would be historically suspicious if for no other reason than that luke alone knows anything of them here then we again find luke in his favorite employment of furnishing a frame to the discourses of jesus which tradition had delivered to him a procedure much farther removed from historic faithfulness than the effort of matthew to give unity to discourses gathered from different periods without adding matter of his own The formation of the climax, above displayed, can only be conceived in accordance with the general relation between the synoptists in the following manner. Mark, who in this instance evidently had Matthew before him, enriched his account with the dramatic expression idontes, while Luke, independent of both, has added a repast, whether presented to him by a more developed tradition or invented by his own more fertile imagination. Together with this unhistorical position, the proportions themselves seem to be disfigured by Luke. Chapter 11, verse 39 through 41, and verse 49, and the observation of the lawyer, Master, thus saying thou reproachest us also chapter 11 verse 45 too much resembles an artificial transition from the philippic against the pharisees to that against the doctors of the law another passage in this discourse has been the subject of much discussion it is that verse 35 in which jesus threatens his contemporaries that all the innocent blood shed from that of abel to that of Zacharias, the son of Barachias, slain in the temple, will be required of their generation. The Zacharias of whom such an end is narrated, Second Chronicles chapter twenty-four, verse twenty and following, was a son not of Barachias, but of Jehoiada. On the other hand, there was a Zacharias, the son of Baruch who came to a similar end in the Jewish war. Moreover, it appears unlikely that Jesus would refer to a murder which took place 850 BC as the last. Hence, it was at first supposed that we have, in verse 35, a prophecy, and afterwards, a confusion of the earlier with the latter event. And the later notion has been used as an accessory proof that the first gospel is a posterior compilation. It is, however, equally probable that the Zacharias son of Jehoiada, whose death is narrated in the Chronicles, has been confounded with the prophet Zechariah, who was a son of Barachias. Zechariah chapter one verse one, Septuagint. Baruch, in Josephus, is not the same name. Especially as a Targum, evidently in consequence of a like confusion with the prophet who was a grandson of Edo, calls the murdered Zechariah a son of Edo. The murder of a prophet, mentioned by Jeremiah, chapter 26, verse 23, was doubtless subsequent to that of Zechariah but in the jewish order of the canonical books jeremiah precedes the chronicles and to oppose a murder revealed in the first canonical book to one recorded in the last was entirely in the style of jewish parlance after having considered all the discourses of jesus given by matthew and compared them with their parallels with the exception of those which had come before us in previous discussions or which have yet to come before us in our examination of single incidents in the public ministry or of the history of the Passion, it might appear requisite to the completeness of our criticism that we should also give a separate investigation to the connection in which the two other synoptists give the discourses of Jesus and, from this point, review the parallels in Matthew. But we have already cast a comparative glance over the most remarkable discourses in Luke and Mark, and gone through the parables which are peculiar to each. And as to the remainder of what they offer in the form of discourses, it will either come under our future consideration, or, if not, the point of view from which it is to be criticized, has been sufficiently indicated in the foregoing investigations. End of section 79